welcome back, my friends, to a super, super special episode of Sound Perspective. Well, I mean, they're all special, but this one is super special because it is a Sound Perspective International Edition. We're taking this worldwide, baby. Uh, been a while. Um, I've been busy back at my last year of school. I'm working hard on some side projects, just hustling, hustling. But I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to have you back. Have you back here with me. Hope you enjoyed this one because it was really fun. Um, I was on holidays over Christmas. Went to England, went to Korea. Uh, while I was in England, I thought, what the hell? Might as well hit up the local talent. Uh, I asked around. Uh, everyone was busy, what with it being Christmas and all. Then I called James Mather. Now, James is an absolute top dog. He's been supervising Sound Editor on this, that, and the other. Uh, Harry Potter films from the Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix onwards. Uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, Clash of the Titans. So, he's got a big history of, like, action films under his belt. But then he's also done, like, Notes on a Scandal, which is an absolutely... Phenomenal drama. So, he's done it all. Um, anyway, I call him up just after Christmas and he's like, Yeah, I got a couple of hours on New Year's Eve. Let's meet then. What a nice guy. New Year's Eve made time for some stranger during his holidays when he was about to drive down to his family on New Year's Eve. Amazing. So, yeah, I went over to his room at Twickenham Studios in southwest London. He showed me around and we had this awesome conversation. Uh, once again, this was edited by the amazing Jamaica Blackman. Uh, thanks so much, Jamaica. You're a boss. Um, so yeah, enjoy it, guys, because I did. James Mather. Yeah. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting. So uh, how did you get into sound as a career? I started as an apprentice in 1982 at a small company in Bristol called uh, Nigel Ashcroft Associates. And they were basically doing animation for a company called Ardman, who were then doing Morph and a number of other animated conversation pieces. And a lot of Bristol uh, natural history unit work. So most of the films we were cutting were on 16 mil and were mute. Mm. So it was... it. it, it Although I didn't start doing sound, I started just as an apprentice for a couple of years and then became an assistant picture editor. It was very much about um, track laying from the offset because there was nothing there. Um, and so I learned at a very early stage about pre-recording dialogues for animation and about the importance of production recordings for the natural history. So uh, I had quite a strong start in the, uh, in the audio post, but I didn't get into doing track laying per se until... Uh, maybe mid-80s um, when I started doing some drama work uh, in, as a freelancer um, and I wasn't particularly good at it. <laughs> um, I sort of had to learn the hard way, the long way round by making mistakes, which is always, a you know, it's always fruitful. Um, and, then, and then I went travelling and, and ended up in uh, Melbourne and I worked on the Thunderdome, Mad Max. Yeah, something that I saw on your IMDb that I was curious about was said uncredited assistant. Yeah, on, yeah. Were you like uh, a 
production assistant? No, I, I turned up one day and just said, oh, can I come and do anything to work on the film? Because I was jobbing my way around, around Australia, traveling. And I just said, look, I, I see that you're in production, in post-production. I'd love to come and offer my services to help in any way I can. So they said, well, have you done any charting? And I said, yeah, I know how to do charting. So in those days, because everything was on film, the only visual representation that the mixers would have would be a series of charts, which a lot of mixers still use now, but with technology as it is, uh, it appears on a computer screen for you now. But in those days, you'd have these big charts which would indicate where the tracks were and what was coming up on each track and where relative to the other tracks. So you'd have to hand draw and write the time code or the footage, as it was, um, on the charts. And I charted for about two weeks. And I guess they realised that I knew what I was doing because I could chart and therefore I had a, a semblance of knowledge. Uh, so then I started laying up the music uh, as it came in, which is quite a functional thing. And then as the production got more and more hectic um, towards the end, I then started laying in effects. So none of it was about selection. It was just about being given the, the tracks to put into the, uh, into the uh, being given the audio recordings to put into the tracks. Um, but it was, and then it was on that production that we came across the Fairlight. And um, it was probably the first time I'd seen uh, a computer based digital sound tool that would synchronize with picture and it it peaked in excitement it peaked in interest mm. and mm. so when i came back i invested in a very simple digital workstation and um and from that point on i stayed with sound mm. so that must have been in the early in the late 80s early 90s i guess i come to england and can't even get away from mad max I know. Everyone I know. I've talked to has worked on Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, well, when you're in Australia, it's probably one of the few things that you know. It's a big production, and there and there and it and it needs an awful lot of uh, resources. And yeah. there was it was a big crew. Yeah. There was a lot to do in a short amount of time. Yeah. So you didn't go to school? No, I didn't. Stu- well, I did, I did go to school, but I didn't study film or sound. It, it wasn't really as popular a course as it is now mm. back in the 80s um it's a funny thing I, I you know i'm 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 the one the one huge advantage i believe in the education process of production and post-production film is that it gives students uh, an opportunity to understand the entire process and then to find out where their interest is where their interest lies uh, in that process and quite often people will go in wanting to become directors or producers or and they've got quite a fixed um, idea but more often than not the journey that you go through in those years will educate you as to what the process involves and and hopefully will enrich your understanding of the collaboration and the and the need to work together but uh the reality because of where i come from is that the film industry is exactly that it is an industry and as with any industry you need to be doing it really to be to be sharpening your tools and i think that while studying is very noble and very useful it it and clarifying if you think you know what you want to do then i always say get out there and do it make make tea run errands for people do whatever whatever you can to get in the door of a production because you'll learn 
if you know what you want to do, if it's sound or if it's picture, you'll learn so much more in a, such a short amount of time because the urgency and the specificity of what you're doing is all relative. And uh, I think that, that that it's kind of baptism by fire, but it's an industry and it's all about working. And I think one of the problems that we don't have um, across the board is is a clear defined internship structure whereby people can be taken on it's recognized but it's not promoted and people aren't encouraged enough to take on interns um, so that people can study and they may do a you know six month internship or or even a year and then decide they want to go and study after that but personally um, I got lucky by getting a job at, at 17 years old and I wasn't sure it was exactly what I wanted to do. So I traveled a lot and I came back to it in the 90s. Um, as I said before, you know, discovering digital sound really, that's what got me into suddenly wanting to do sound more than anything else was the fluidity and the kind of mercurial manner that you could start playing with audio as opposed to just laying up tracks with mag, um, which was which was, which was a, a very, very well-worn path but this this opened up other opportunities so wait do you mean that like the beginning stages of being an assistant sound person yeah. was more interesting than being an assistant editor uh funnily enough a lot of in in the 80s and when i was starting an assistant editor would, and they still do I, i'll stop going back in time I'll, I'll keep it current um assistant editors are still very in, involved in in laying up sound effects and um embellishing the cutting copy um on the avid tracks and often when we get turnovers we get you know a good 10 or 12 effects tracks that, that come from the picture department and it's and the the picture assistant is very often or the second assistant is very often engaged for that reason um, and they liaise with us about delivering stuff to them so that they can have it in the system while they're working. And it helps a lot of editors like to be able to show directors sequences with uh, as much material and as much uh, embellishment as they can as early as they can. Um, we work with Eddie Hamilton on Mission Impossible and we were doing sequences months before the, t the turnover or we were due to start the production because so much of it was in camera. It meant that the cuts could be turned over ready as they were going along and picture department do a lot of that i think that if you want to specialize in um sound it's a very easy swap to go from second assistant picture editor into sound because you discover what you're doing through that process that actually you really enjoy doing the sound so you go right can i come and spend some time in the sound department i'm i'm all for cross-pollination i love the idea that interns from our from our side of the tracks can go and work on a production recording and be part of the shoot recording wild tracks and anything else they can get so when they get to production uh, when they get to post-production they have a very keen understanding of all the emotion and all the reasons behind why it was done a certain way and they they have the shorthand language and i think it's the same with assistant picture editors the understanding the process of of telling that story that narrative is incredibly useful if you were to take that into the sound world and and say right well this is this was done for this reason this was done for that reason um we've had it on a number of productions but not very many not as many as i'd like um, but they should be far more integrated than they are. I think those two departments are quite often alienated. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's all down to 
as I said earlier, collaboration and filmmakers, some are very singular and some are very sociable and every production without fail is different. Mm. So we try and instill our way of doing things and we encourage people to um, cross the line and tell us what, you know, everything that they know so that we know more. Even if it's in a pub, you know, even if it's go going out with the assistants for a drink and saying, okay, guys, tell us what's what's the thought behind this, What's the th because the editors are too busy doing it. Mm. But the assistants are very aware of what's going on before, during, and after mm. the edit process. Mm. Cool. You've worked on a lot of really interesting films, but uh, the ones that stand out for me are the Harry Potter ones, <laughs> just because I think they're really interesting sonically sure. as well. You came onto Harry Potter when David Yates started. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So did he like bring you on, or was there like a general shakeup in the staff of the film? No, I think every director was offered the opportunity to. I mean, every director that did a Potter was offered a crew from the previous show or to change it as they see fit, saw fit. Um, David came from a very uh, strong television drama background. And this was, I believe, this was his first major feature film. And I think he wanted to have... Uh, I think he wanted to have people that were also coming to it for the first time. He wanted that fresh creativity. Uh, he didn't want to feel that he was going to be um, beholden to somebody who'd already done it twice and then therefore had a very specific idea about how it should sound relative to the previous version and the version before that. So he was very keen to give opportunities to people who he admired and wanted to work with. And I was, I'd never worked with him before, but I was really lucky to... It was an amazing break, actually. It was one of those one of those um, golden moments where you realise that it changes, it, the the shift changes the perspective of how you're perceived, but also how you um, how you want to continue in the industry. Whether you want to be doing odd ball kind of you know quirky medium budget art house films or go into the world of tentpole films which is a very very different beast and so no i think he i think he across the board he kept some key people um visually i think he kept some of the key visual people because obviously the look of the film had to the relative visual effects were kind of generic a lot of them had to work but in terms of sound the first one that we did the order of the phoenix i um i opted to keep most of the crew from the previous two films um, because they obviously had a, a library. They had access to the full Potter library, which I could get, but they had the shorthand to access it easily, knowing where things were. They also had a, an understanding of why certain things were a certain way, which I could then either go with and agree with or or take and manipulate, um, which is what we did. But it was, it was very helpful to have their input and their... Um, Everyone's so proud of working on those shows. Everyone was so uh, invested in them personally. It I, it, I didn't want it to be a complete turnaround and, you know, a, a total shake-up. I wanted it to be, if things were going to change, I wanted it to happen over a period of time where it made sense rather than just trying to stamp my sort of seal of authority on mm -hmm. it. So when you started, uh, was there extensive thought as to how to relate the sound of the new films to 
the old ones? Did you think a lot about how you were going to continue or yeah. work upon the previous work? Yeah, I mean, the, the discussions were very much based on the idea that um, the transition period that David took the films on from were more about the sort of teenage years rather than the youngster years. And it was that, I think, Alfonso's film really did the the shift and this was now about taking them through to the final moment and it was all about their their adulthood they're becoming more mature and the kind of anxieties that teenagers have and the you know the the muscularity of a teenager and the energy of a teenager as opposed to the innocence of a of a of a child and so we we talked and thought a lot about making it so that uh, it was still poetic and it was still graceful and beautiful, but it had this underlying masculinity and muscly kind of texture of of um, intent. So you know the the battles between Malfoy and Harry um, were far more visceral and punchy than they had been in previous things, and and equally the Dementors were um, a lot more physical in a strange way it became a more physical sounding um soundtrack because of their age and so we we also wanted to play on 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 the psychology of the characters and the kind of um their unnerved experiences in the way that they somebody would make them feel safe and somebody would be threatening and and the sound was was along with the scores was there to try and amp that and build that and make it slightly more threatening and darker that generally they became darker i think alfonso's was clearly going in that direction but i think that this that they david took it in a more emotionally darker place mm. and so what what for us was fantastic is that it the emotion was not just based on the score but it was also based on the on the texture and the and the impact of the sound design mm. Mm. So it's pretty plain to see that uh, over the years, uh, the Harry Potter films get a lot darker. Was there any specific way that you tried to reflect that sonically? There was, yeah. There, there, I think that you know our, our our ambition is to enhance the storytelling process, not to lead it uh, or follow it, but just to help enhance it as it goes along, and. Um, that very often unlocks and enables you to be able to experiment in certain ways. And the the key element for me of the entire four that we did from, from Order of the Phoenix to the end was the notion of the Horcrux. And the narrative of the Horcrux became really profound um, in The Half-Blood Prince and, and, and continued. And that that became incredibly sound dependent or we 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 invested an awful lot in making these these horcrux um animal human but they had a they had a they had a, an emotion and they had a an impact and an influence that was led predominantly through the sound um obviously there was a lot of visual flashbacks and various different um various different tricks that were done to, to give you the visual narrative but the sound quite often was the only thing that was working a lot of the time um, there's there's a th- I believe it's 
a half-blood prince where they're trying to destroy a brooch, a necklace. Um, and we used... <clears throat> we were trying to... We, we wanted it to be a disturbing sound. So, you know, the strings of a piano being scratched and um, pitched and varied. Uh, and the sound of Vuvuzelas. I think it was the World Cup was playing and everybody was complaining about these horns that were being used. <laughs> and everyone hated them. Again, all the all the... TV commentators hated this sound of Vuvuzela because it was a kind of a constant drone. So we got some Vuvuzelas and recorded them and used those in the Horcrux. It was anything that was unnerving um, and scratchy and uncomfortable. And so that became a really, really important part. You know, when you get a, when you get a hook in, in a soundtrack and you realise that it's, it's a storytelling narrative, um, it's really exciting to be able to... Uh, bring some subtext to a film that doesn't uh, doesn't exist visually mm. you're mm. making the the sound is the story of what's going on mm. and so when harry's being influenced by the horcrux this this sound in his head is what we hear and that you know it's not a visual it's just it's just this this unnerving visceral sort of element mm. which i loved i loved i was that was the that was one of the elements one of the aspects of of the potter films that gave me the most satisfaction because the the big dynamic fights and battles were were um exciting and fun to do but it was the psychological sounds that we were creating that mm. made it more unique mm. because the horcruxes without uh any kind of sonic uh implications they're just objects, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. They're just like there's nothing threatening about them. Just no, to look at them. Absolutely. And I think the moment where, for example, the moment where they they're in the wood, um, uh, and they and they crack open the the brooch and um, uh, Voldemort comes out in a kind of billowing smoke. Then you get the visual when the cor when the Horcrux is finally mm. destroyed. The, the visuals take over and, and it's and it's a it's a spectacle it's, it's wonderful but it's that it's that underlying you know sound like sound is a very emotive uh technique it's a very emotive thing entity and people have nostalgia they can hear things that make them feel nostalgic whether it's a certain church bell or whether it's you know um dogs barking in the distance it remind it makes you very it locates you very easily and waveforms and different frequencies will will impact you in very different ways um and so to use sound as a as a as an emotive element as a stimulation for for nostalgia and for what people generally feel comfortable with or uncomfortable with is is always exciting and those are Films like Harry Potter are brilliant for that because they—that's what they're about, and that—that that teenage anxiety and that—that—that—that that, that, that kind of dysfunctional um, relationship element is a great opportunity. Um, a lot of other films, don't, you know, you, you don't get that opportunity in a Mission Impossible. That's not what it's about. It's about the 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 action and the chase and the impact, um, and that's equally exciting. But the psychological element of sound is it's a it's not always something that's needed mm. but we try and do it we try and do it with with ambiences we try and do it with you know we were talking about skip Lucy and his mix on roma and roma's a, a wonderful example of um uh 
the sound focuses your attention on what you what the director wants you to be aware of so whether it's somebody's breathing being slightly louder than you would expect it to be or whether it's the sound of a plane or whether it's the sound of certain waves or whatever it is the sounds that are making you dial in are very specific to what the director wants you to focus on and that's a that's a great use of sound. That's what we all try and do. We all try and help make it a, a focal point to, 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 to draw the audience to a certain part of the shot or a certain part of the sequence. Um, you know, we're lucky. We're very lucky if we get the opportunity to do that. We don't always, but when we do, we, we really go for it. I saw you accredited as sound supervisor on all of them. So yeah. you kind of uh, had, you kind of wore the hat, did you? Yes. Uh, in the sound, like you were the... Head of department for yeah. post sound. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That was my job. That was what I was employed as, um, and uh, you know, I, 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 again, I, I think collaboration is essential. It's really important that you have a crew that work together and don't work independently from each other, um, coveting their work above others. I think it's really important that editors share work and once somebody's done a s sequence then somebody else might have a go at it later once the new conform comes in and they can then they can then embellish it with elements that they have and they think are, are, are interesting and it becomes an amorphic element a morphic creature that that develops through everybody's input rather than just a few individuals that have decided that's the that's the sequence they want to do that's the sequence they want to do um Sound design is a is a is it's a funny it's a funny old thing. It I could see why it came about because so much more was being done than just editing sounds. It, it, when when sounds were being created, when people would go away and spend days working on synths and different recordings to make sounds, much like the musicians Pink Floyd and that lot did, you know, creating things that they could then add to the soundtrack. I could see the point of the sound design credit. Now, everybody, every editor I work with, designs sound. It's it's uh, they all have they all have their strengths, and some are more ambient tonal kind of element design, and some are much more specific and um, uh, percussive. But equally, they they'll be sound design. I mean, even with you know simple punches, there's there's a lot of elements that go into that 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 aren't real sounds they're designed to to enhance the weight or the impact or the or the or the delay or the in, incoming element so um one of the things i discovered early on was that there's a once once there's a hierarchy of 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 um what would you call it i suppose there's a hierarchy of titles um it can sometimes create entitlement and quite often entitlement can alienate rather than um, help collaborate. So I'm I'm very keen to always strip away any sense of entitlement and allow everybody the opportunity of being part of the process on equal terms. And equally, they can discuss things with each other if they if they're not happy about the way certain people might be working and or not working. Or then it's an open debate that that doesn't allow things to get. Um, vitriolic or, f or, or fester uh, I don't like the elephants in the room I like to make sure the room's clear and that everybody is getting on because it's for the production you know that, that great quote it takes 100 people uh, to 
hundreds of people to to uh, have an idea about how they want to make a film um but there are only two really and one of the, only one of them is right and it's that idea that everybody should have an input everybody should have an idea about what they want it to be like everybody should be should have a pers- personal investment in what they do because they'll do a better job for it but clearly everybody has to also understand that by the time you've gone through the the process of elimination and and mixing and simplifying there are there is actually the filmmaker and the director is who we're working for and his or her vision is what we're aiming to please and aiming to um enhance uh so the, the egos are are a, a wonderful thing they they give people confidence to do things that they might otherwise not bother or not try but they are can also be a little bit counterproductive so we try and we try I don't I haven't credited sound designers for a long time because all the effects editors on the team are designing um, and it would look a bit odd if you had four sound designers and no effects editors it's it's a strange one so I, I, it's a personal thing about how I like to operate within a crew and within my department I'm really curious about the sound effects editing in Harry Potter um, and were you heavily involved in the sound effects? Because I'm curious as to, uh, in a fantasy film, the sounds of spells and uh, of magic happening, like, mm. you know, apparition mm. or people making spells, wands, those magical explosions. Uh, what's your point of reference? Uh well, we work a lot with the visual department, so we see a lot of drawings before we get to start doing the sound design. And we're and usually, a lot of all those things, the sound design is being created um, alongside, if not before the visuals arrive. So we get to see a lot of the, the elements, and they... We start with a very... We start with something that everybody understands. We start... If it's an explosion, we start with an explosion. And then we work out elements that will make it slightly twisted and slightly different a lot of reversing of things and a lot of um different frequencies that come in so an explosion might have a a, a high-end whip at the end which gives you a sense that there's there's something different about it rather than just a big crash and a big bang um so it's a bit like starting uh, starting with a piece of stone and chiseling away and then and then you you know you get to a shape that you believe is the right shape and then you can start adding extra bits to it um of copper and of bronze and and so you're you're forming a sculpture with many different elements and you're doing the same with sound you're adding all sorts of different elements to what is basically a fundamental sound that we all know and understand so by making it something that is traditional people get it the story is told but by then supplementing it with additional elements and tweaks and um, nuances you're giving it the identity that separates it from other versions of that explosion and the, and with the wands again it was a lot of um, whether or not there was going to be a, an impact or whether it was just a passing um, spell that missed or whether it was a, a grand spell that had a massive effect on, 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 a, on a large object or whether it was a very specific small spell we, we spent a long time taking sounds animal sounds human sounds um and playing with them manipulating them so that they were we wanted the spells to have a human element because everybody has everybody's spell is relative to them so we wanted their spells to be somehow 
have an element of the character in. So we used a lot of their um, vocal elements and, and manipulated that. But ultimately, you need to start with a sound that everybody understands because you're telling a story. And if it's an explosive spell, it has to have an explosive impact. And what it's hitting is relevant, whether it's wood or brick. Very simple. And then after that, you start augmenting it with, with character and design. So you used the vocals of the actors yeah. in the in the spells. spells. That's that's yeah. amazing. That's a really interesting way yeah. of approaching it. Yeah. It's it's uh it, it doesn't have to be anything that, they don't have to come in and do anything. We can just take a shout or a scream or something that they've done on the production and start playing with that and make it make it just an element. Just a it's a it's a it's a very subtle connection, but quite often it's essential to have that uh, again, with the Horcrux, there was a lot of reversed dialogues coming in, so that you knew that it was it was pertinent to Harry's experience of it, not Ron's or Hermione's, and um, that proved to be a really helpful element to 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 link them. Mm. Um, I'm going to ask a really specific question because it's something I found really interesting: the flashback scenes into the pensive yeah yeah um so uh, there's there's a lot of kind of conventions when you're doing flashback scenes as to how to treat it sonically like you often have a lot of reverb or yeah. echoes and stuff but um i found the Har- the pensive scenes quite unique in the reverb that you use yeah it's really high-end uh hissy Yes. Kind of reverb. Was there anything that made you decide on that treatment of We it? worked for we worked for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on those. And the and the the initial plan was that everything should be a reversed reverb that stops hard. So every footstep would be a reversed reverb up up to the impact of the foot and then it would mm. so be a kind of sucking. Everything mm. had this kind of suction feel to it. So it it wasn't echoing out, it was it was all drawing in to the clarity, which is visually what we were told was going to be going to happen. Things would develop out of the liquid, and you'd see images, and then you'd be in a room. There's one um, where Dumbledore goes to visit uh, a very young Voldemort in his orphanage, mm. and it becomes very. It, it goes from very designed and twisted to very intimate and it then relied massively on the treatments that we used just for the dialogues so again what we did is we we <laughs> we recorded everything backwards and then we cut it so that it lined up with all the words as they were written as they were read as they were spoken going forwards so there was this underlying reversed version of it under each line and then we also had this um a reverb but only to the reverse dialogue not to the real dialogue so the real dialogue stayed dry or with a small treatment on it but the reverse stuff fed side chain different different elements and different verbs some snake hissing some komodo dragon stuff so that there was this there was there was a there was a world in the reverb treatment that that had all sorts of implications, but it was very subtle. Yeah. So you didn't ever feel like it was not part of the voice, mm. but you couldn't quite work where, work out what it was. Yeah. It was it, 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 in terms of reverb settings, we tried probably about six different versions, and they all ended up sounding very generic. So the only way to really make it work was to reverse all the audio, cut it up, and then relay it 
to match where it was being said forwards and that worked with footsteps as well we'd do mm. like even the footsteps were reversed mm. and it just it's a very time consuming mm. but quite often those kind of that organic way of working where everything is done in a very old fashioned edit format creates some of the best sound design because mm. it's not about leaving it to algorithms to, mm. to come up with things it's yeah. about and you can do that with algorithms you, you know we, we've been doing it on a film recently with Kid Who Be King with some of the vocal treatments in that um, but because of the nature of Potter and because of the specificity of, of, of the soundtracks before and the, 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 the fact that the magic in the film and the, the horror in the film and the distortion of all those elements was so it's rare that you work on something that is so scrutinised it's rare that you work on a project where so many people are going to be investing their time to go and see it and love it they, they already love it because of the books and now they love it because of the movies and so the, the, the there is no there's no room for selling it short mm. and so you probably go to greater lengths to enhance you know the, the, the character of these things mm. uh, I'm, it's interesting you use snakes because one of the first things I thought when I heard those scenes was parcel tongue. Yeah. It made me think of like yeah. snakes. There was parcel speaking. tongue all the way through it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Who came up with parcel tongue? How that would sound? I guess it was the people in the first couple of films. Yeah, but... I think, it, I mean, I'd say it's probably in the books. It's probably a sense of it in the book of what it yeah. was. Um, and I think then the designers came up with it the dialogue mm. designers came up with it yeah. later on. Yeah. Um, uh, it became more. It became more specific later. I think when Voldemort and the snake became more mm. relative to each other, yeah. and and mm. therefore it became this kind of their relationship. And actually, we used it a lot with Voldemort um, during the final battle scenes mm. because it was part of his way he spoke then became more serpent-like and mm. yeah cool um you you said that you guys did a lot of time experimenting with the uh effects mm. and stuff mm. were you given that time were you on a big budget film like this were you able to have the time to experiment i think this the I mean, part of my role is to manage the time and the expectations of what can be done in that time. Managing expectations is probably crucial, the most crucial. But in that time, you then have to allocate where you want the creative element. Where, how much time of this do you want to spend on the creativity and how much time are you going to have to spend on the functional laying up the sounds and putting them into picture? And like all visual effects films, there's a, there's a push-me-pull-you uh, um, element of when things are first conceived and then when you finally get to see them and so we have to design these elements in a fairly loose way and then as the picture gets more and more finalised we then have to start tightening the nuts and bolts of our sound design and bringing the elements together tighter or looser to make them but but we we I guess on a film like Harry Potter, we had we had we had the same amount of time as most films at that scale. It's usually about thirty weeks thereabouts. Um, but w what we did have was was a bigger crew. We had a bigger crew than most UK sound crews would have, um, and I think that's kind of 
that that's taking a leaf from the American system whereby the crews they may not start very big but by the time they get to you know a, a couple of months before the the mixing starts the crew will expand massively in order to be able to keep up with the picture changes and all the elements that need to be all the elements that need to be then um resunk and recreated but once we developed in the first one in in the, in the phoenix once we developed um the crucial elements it was then a case of everybody jumping to and getting it cut in in time for the mixing so i'd say if uh, overall we probably spent the first two months doing an awful lot of design elements design work and then by the time uh, after about the third or fourth month with that started settling down and we'd start getting into the laying up of it in in real detail and making sure that it was working towards so the last two to three months of mixing things were things were already you know locking into shape and into place but the first period of 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 post-production sound was very much about exploring uh, you know what was going to work and what was going to work and and we did use a huge amount of the stuff that randy did before in the other potters we we tried to source the generic sounds as much as we could and and tweak occasionally mm. but there were things that happened that you know the, there were a lot of apparate stuff that that was very different looked different so yeah, we yeah apparation was a new yeah. thing wasn't it yeah. in the new films yeah so we we had a lot of fun with the apparation stuff because it not only got us to and from places in it and it allowed you to suck the air out of the exit and and explode the air back into the arrival but it also meant that when there were moments where you were within the apparate and you were traveling with the characters as they were going through their apparition you could have real sort of tearing shredding we wanted it to be not so much stretchy but we wanted it to be ripping and Mm. like you're being dismembered and discombobulated and then recreated just in time to yeah. come back yeah. and it's it, not neat no yeah no it's not an easy ride mm. and that was very much about the soundtrack that we wanted to have all the way through potter we didn't want it to be an easy ride we wanted it to be visceral and uncomfortable where needed and and comforting where, where you know in other yeah. places that's really cool so there must have been was there a significant change in technology between like 2001 first film the stuff that you were given from them and yeah. the last film yeah like- yeah technology keeps changing and you keep having to re re um ingest old file formats that are no longer recognized by pro tools or whatever system you're working with there's 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 always you always have to update everything um certain pro tools sessions wouldn't open because they were corrupt because of the new versions of software and so we had to go back to having a system that was basically allocated to the previous productions and was running software that was relative to those productions so that we could at least open and access elements of uh, of the soundtrack for reference and for for use but um i think you know i think that that like i said earlier a lot uh, the earlier one the earlier films were very and i don't mean this critically in a bad way they were very naive the soundtrack was very naive and it was a very it was very much more about the fun of being a kid and the excitement of the the crazy car and the you know the flying and and the and the spiders and the things that things that were the the sound was a lot more functional and a lot more relative to what the kids were experiencing and the kind of 
the physicality of that world. Whereas our our journey was much more about the psychological part of their journey. Um, so it was a very, very different palette of sounds and a very different world that we were trying to signify. Um, but they all had their pace and they all worked incredibly well. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a strange thing working on a series of films where you're working alongside the great um, the good and the great of the industry from all over the world and you're part of a much much bigger wheel than just the group that you're working with on that on that particular film you're inheriting an awful lot of time and effort and talent from other people that you know you, you have to respect they've done a great job it's not like you want to dismiss anything you want to you want to be able to you want the audience to continue their journey with familiarity with what they've already known and what they're now being taken on into um so uh, it did change it did change a lot but technically the that's just that's just progress apparently mm. <laughs> so on a fairly big studio film like the harry potters was david yates the person who primarily gave you instruction or was it a lot from producers or the studio um so david Heyman. Uh, was very involved. Obviously, it was his. It was his baby. He he started the whole franchise, um, and he was very. His role was very very tied to, um, or, or, or receptive and responsible to J.K.'s initial concept and then what the story was about and what her take on the films would be. And so David Heyman was very much about keeping the integrity of the of the whole rather than just each individual book being a film um so he'd have a lot of things to say that were, that were relevant to you know we're going too far in that direction we're going too far away from what's really important uh, and what have you david uh yates was very much about um yeah the texture and the dynamics of what we were doing and whether or not we were we were trying too hard and we were pushing the limits of what he wanted or weren't, we weren't trying enough or we weren't registering the right frequencies for certain elements of of threat or um so he's he was very much involved in in the sound process yeah cool moving on to mission impossible because it was pretty interesting what you said about that do you have a really different methodology when working with action films yeah yeah i think action films are about uh, they're about fluidity and they're about jeopardy and peril and I think that the soundtrack in an action film should be there to give the audience the, as much of the experience that the actors the characters in the film are experiencing so whether it's a car chase and you're cutting from inside and outside and looking their POV to the motorbikes, to the guns, to the swerves, to the skids, you know, you 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 kind of start with everything, and then you start taking away frequencies that don't that no longer serve a purpose. So quite often you'll have a sequence where, for example, in the last in Fallout and in Rogue Nation, there's a lot of there's a big bike chase. Um, but prior to that, there's a car chase with bikes following the car. This is in um, Rogue Nation, and Chris McQuarrie and Eddie Hamilton were very 
keen to try and really push and pull the audience's experience <clears throat> through through having music and not having music and through letting sound effects take you through a certain part to then do a gear shift where the music would then come in and take you through the next part. You really want to throw the audience around as though they're inside that car or as though they're on the bonnet of that car. You want them to feel like the gun, the bullets are flying literally right past their ears. Um, so, so you make it very, very percussive very rhythmical so that you don't ever feel that you're being jarred or being taken out of um, the moment you feel like you're being thrown around like a passenger and that everything that's happening is happening as as you as you see it you feel it you hear it we could do it in atmos so we could have impacts on the the ceiling of the auditorium when you're in the car and bouncing down the steps and all that stuff and the perspectives of low down with the exhaust on the bike to behind the, the the rider on the bike and the shirt flapping and the, all the different exhaust sounds and all the different revs and it's almost like it's almost like score it's almost like you've got a symphony of sound effects of vehicles and those vehicles some vehicles work really well on their own cars are particularly good because there's so much weight and bulk and clunk and boom and screech and and glass um, and bikes tend to have a higher register, so it, you you know you're you're narrowing the the dynamics, the sound dynamics that you can play with, so you can be punchy on the cuts. But once you're going with the bike, it's pretty much just doing its thing. So, for example, when they're going down the motorway and um, Ethan is going between all the traffic, and one of the last things we had a go at, um, and this is based on the old the old artist's technique of oil painting and taking away layers to reveal previously painted elements is is we thought well as it's going through the trucks why don't we just lose the bike sound as if a truck goes in front of us let's lose the bike sound so actually the audience feels like their ears are being sucked in every time it's being passed which if you drive in a car or on a bike um, and you're going past traffic the reflection of the sound on and off the traffic that you're going past has that same thing so it was trying always with action you're always trying to think how would it sound if I was there how would it be if I was there my ears would be registering something that I, I'm not aware of when it's happening but then when you're making it happen in a film you go now I believe I'm there that's sucking away of sound making your ears look for and then it's back again and then it's gone again and those are combined with whooshing trucks and whatever else it's just it's just about the detail and the and the specifics that give you that sense of being there and the flight sequence at the beginning of uh, Rogue Nation where Tom Ethan climbs onto the plane and the plane takes off the dynamic range of sounds that we we added to that was pretty pretty full it was pretty much everything going on and it was at a as a sound pressure level of about 113 dB for about five seconds which is intense but because it's not a sharp sound because it's not an impact sound because it's a roar that's building it doesn't feel as loud as an explosion would because your ears are building with it and so they're going oh wow and you know tom came into the stage when we were mixing and the grin on his face he was like man that's as close as being there as you can get because that's how it felt that sound that you're enveloped in this in this cacophony of frequencies um and we've been really lucky with the mission impossible the last two mission impossibles in that tom is very involved in the whole process as a producer as a as a as an actor and and he knows it like you know it's in his blood um so he He's been there. He's done the chases. He did the stunts. He's done everything. So when you're playing something back to him, 
what you're doing is saying, did it sound like this? Is this how you remember it? And you've got the guy to say, yeah, this is how I remember it, as opposed to a stuntman who you'll never meet again. You'll never be able to quiz a stuntman about how it sounded. Mm. And then you're working on other people's perception of what the action should be. Well, this is a different situation. This is where we say to the guy who was doing it, who remembers it, he goes, yep, that's what it sounds like. But now I want this to be the most important part of it because the narrative has to work for the storyline. So we, we know we've got it, but now we just have to work out. So the skydive, the halo jump in in Fallout, was one of those. One of those. Do we have it from his perspective all the time? Do we do it from the audience's perspective? Where there's obviously a lot more air going on. Um, do we do it from a bit of both? Do where do we? How are we telling? How are we telling this story? And who? How do we make it more engaging for the audience? And it's always about the character. So we go with the character's perspective until he gets struck by lightning. And then we take everything out so that we, we that's how it might sound to him. It's like he's been suddenly, everything's gone, his ears have shot because the impact of lightning is quite a big deal. And then and then you come back in with the reality of stuff. So you, you know that you've got it there. It's just where is the story going to take you? And in action, the most important part of it is, is either the humour, because quite often they're a funny bit like the bathroom fight in Fallout, it's a great fight scene and it's got lots of various different textures. It's got smashing glass, breaking cabinets, you know, metal pipes. But there's a the martial arts element of it is can be at times quite funny. It's quite hilarious that that, that, that Tom's doing so bad. Ethan's not doing very well against this martial art expert. And that 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 humour, that delicate balance of gratuitous violence and softening it slightly with the fact that he's constantly being knocked down and and not doing as well as he should be um it's 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 it is it's like it's like scoring and that was no music again that was it was an effects only scene so we had the opportunity to push and pull it like you would a score and play with the dynamics and the frequencies and the impacts and the and the and the less is more sometimes and other but you can't have it all the same it's got to be varied and it's got to have different it's got to be difficult uh to not kind of fatigue an audience in really loud scenes like yeah. that, really intense. Absolutely, scenes. absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the students of silence. I, I firmly believe that the the most useful sound in your toolbox is silence. You know, um, and Eddie Eddie Hamilton's the same. We have a lot of we laugh a lot about. He, he loves things to go to digital silence. How long can you stay in digital silence? And it's, uh, you know, you can stay there as long as you want. It's 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 what you come out with. It's what the sound is that yeah. takes you out of that, yeah. that, that is as important. But yeah, you need to, you need to, you need to let the audience assimilate what they've just experienced. And very often that assimilation needs a, a you know, needs a, everything to subside and allow the audience to rest their ears and just let the eyes do some work. And, you know, the, the sound of a, a helicopter chase scene into a crash, into a fight is immense and it's on, it's never ending. So when it does end and you've got a fight, you kind of let the fight just be what it is. And you don't, it's not, they're not action heroes. They're, 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 this is a real fight. It's gritty and it's messy and it's, clothy and it's not and so you can let everything come down and the music can do a bit but you you want the audience to to have those moments where wow that's that was a ride that was like i really enjoyed that yeah and not feel 
oh man, that was too much. I can't, I can't focus on what's happening now because I'm wrung out. Yeah. So it's a balance. It's a real fine balance. Mm. Mm. And Britain collaborates a lot with European countries in the film industry. Uh, what's it like working in film in Britain at the moment when there's so much uncertainty with Brexit and how you'll be able to interact and trade with other countries. What's that atmosphere like in the industry? I'm happy to say that I, I'm not aware or involved in that part of the process. In other words, you know, where funding comes for films and where producers go to get the money to be able to make art house films and, and, and you know, films that, that are a collaboration of European countries, that doesn't, I don't, I just get asked to come along at the end and make it sound good. Um, I think in terms of the freedom of movement for editors to work, it's interesting. I had a, one of my, one of my assistants was very keen to go back to Austria um, uh, for fear that Brexit would mean that she had to leave and she wanted to get back there sooner rather than later to avoid the rush of other people going back to Austria to, to take the jobs and we talked about it and you know one of the things that Brexit has done is it's is it stirred up anxiety about what does it actually mean who will it actually affect there's no clear line um, and I don't know I, I certainly don't think it will harm the film industry in the UK with its relationship to the US I think that's a very strong thing I think the investments from the studios seem to be ongoing and seem to be continuing um, more so maybe now with with the content that Disney are talking about having to create um, over the next 10 to 15 years in terms of workforce it doesn't really they it's not there's not a very strong uh, cross-pollination that I'm aware of it's there's a bit but it's not a great... It's not a lot. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how it'll change. I really don't know how it'll change. I I, I fear for the um, universities and colleges that, that rely on overseas students who are coming to learn a craft here, whether that be film or, or anything else. I, I, you know, that could be a problem. I, but it's it's the, the fact is that nobody has clearly said what will happen and what effect it will have. Um, so it's very hard to speculate without knowing that. Mm. Interesting end. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, awesome. Thanks so much, James. That's an absolute pleasure. joining me. Thank it's you. It's been very interesting. Good. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Thanks again to Jamaica Blackman for editing uh, and Jean-David Legoulon uh, for doing all the amazing sound design and music you keep hearing. Uh, if you want to keep updated on, you know, upcoming episodes and all that jazz, find me on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, you just search Sound Perspective on those platforms. I mean, come on, you know how to use a search bar. Um, or, also, follow me on Twitter. I just discovered that. It's really fun. Um, my handle is at Sound Perspect. Not Sound Perspective, it's Sound Perspect. Have a good one, guys.